Take a moment and pray with me. Lord, we, we're thankful for who you are, and we thank you for your incredible love. And we pray that the message that would be poured out from our life lived would be all about Jesus. And so, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, I just pray that you guide us, direct our hearts to be closer to yours. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, go ahead and grab a seat for me. It is good to be with you. Hope you've had a great week. I know we've had a great week, and it's been fun in a way to see our kids go back to school as well. Um, but we uh, we are got a big Sunday today. We are starting a brand new conversation, a brand new series. For those that may be a little bit newer to church, we do conversations, these series that kind of lend itself to what's going on practically in life. And we just, the Bible is in incredibly practical to everyday living. And so we just take a time to periodically kind of walk through different sections of the Bible and what does this mean for this area of our life. And so right now we're starting this conversation for the next five weeks, just talking about the home and uh, we're calling it home field advantage. We're talking about what does a biblical home look like? What is it? How do we structure our home in such a way that honors God and what he's called us to be about? Now, if you're new with us, a special welcome to you as well. My name's Lee. I have the joy to serve here as the pastor. We would love to be able to just personally connect with you following the service. Um, If you wouldn't mind, just stop by the guest services table over here. We have a gift card to either Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts that we'd love to just place in your hand to say thanks for being with us. And also, I don't want to forget... This is Tailgate Sunday, and so after church, we got hot dogs, we got chips, we had cans of Coke. Just hang out. Get to meet somebody, get to know somebody, hang out with those that you've known for a while as well. It's free. We're not charging anything, but we'd love to be able to hang out with you following the service as, as well. Now, we are in this conversation called Home Field Advantage, and uh, I don't know if you're a sports fan or not. Do you know what we're talking about when we call Home Field Advantage? The, the basic idea, the basic purpose of what Home Field Advantage stands for is simply this. I got a quick definition that's going to come up on the screen here. Daniel, you got that? There we go. Home Field Advantage is when teams have an advantage historically playing and competing at home versus playing on the road. That's really what we're talking about when we think about Home Field Advantage. And there's all kinds of different reasons why Home Field Advantage exists. Well, first of all, like teams don't have to travel. Like They can sleep in their own bed, they have a normal routine, their day is normal structured, they're not having to fight the travel of going across country, other people maybe fixing their meals and all that. So that that in itself has an effect upon you from a physical standpoint. You have other things like no time zones that you're having to deal with, but the biggest reason home field advantage exists are the fans, right? I mean, in certain spectrums, like... Texas A&M, Seattle, they call the, the fans what? The 12th man. In, in other words, like there's something particular, there's something in addition to who they are and how they operate that the fans create. Now, in some scenarios, specifically like in football and basketball, the fans can get so loud that they can throw off the other team. But here's really the power of the fans. And research has actually proven this that the fans have a tendency to actually influence, and we don't want to admit it, but the referees, the umpires. And and part of it is you have this huge crowd kind of cheering one main direction. It's easy to get caught up in that even as a referee and even as an umpire. Now, it comes down to this simple truth. When we're talking about home field advantage, it is easier to compete 
where you have more people cheering for you than you have cheering against you. It is really, really hard when you don't have home field advantage. Now, it's interesting. As you can tell, I'm an Arizona Cardinals fan. Um, My son, my wife, myself, we all came this morning wearing our Arizona Cardinals jerseys, um, partly because we're originally from Phoenix. And so we've just kind of maintained our loyalties to our team. There's not a whole lot that we can cheer for when it comes from Phoenix and Phoenix sports, but we're loyal besides the least. But the interesting thing about the Arizona Cardinals is the Arizona Cardinals weren't always the Arizona Cardinals. They came to Phoenix in 1988. And from 1988 all the way to 2006, they didn't have their own stadium. Now, that seems absurd to us in this perspective because now we know, like, owners, I need a stadium. I'll move my team when I have a stadium or I want a new stadium, you know, and they, they leverage that whole thing with the city and taxpayers to try to get the latest, newest, best technology when it comes to the stadium their home field. The Arizona Cardinals did not have their own place to call home from 1988 all the way to 2006. Where did they play? They actually played in Sun Devil Stadium, which is Arizona State University's stadium, football stadium. And so they would have to come in week after week when their home games were being played, and here they are as professional athletes having to share locker rooms with college athletes. You know, all around the stadium, you see ASU not Arizona Cardinals. You can imagine how difficult that was. And part of the challenge for specifically Arizona Cardinals and and their fan base was because they didn't have a home, they didn't have that as part of their structure, you realize when you go to a game, they're not a whole lot of following for Arizona Cardinals. When Dallas Cowboys came to town, it was a Dallas home game more than it was an Arizona home game, if that makes sense. And so Cardinals fans got really smart. They'd buy season tickets. And then what they would do is they would just sell those off to the teams that were coming in because it was an easy way for them to make money because really they didn't want to have to go to Arizona, you know, state Sun Devil Stadium to watch their game. It affected who they were. There was this lack of camaraderie, lack of team orientation that took place in the city of Phoenix. 2006 was a major, major monumental moment in sports in Phoenix world when they actually got their own stadium. I've been to the stadium. It's a remarkable stadium. The stadium has retractable grass. They can pull it in and out of the building. So it's real grass, not artificial stuff. And it totally shifted the mindset of the city and this camaraderie centered around the team. The big advantage, we all have home field advantages that you have more people cheering for you than against you. I don't know if you've been to a home game and you realize I'm, I seem to be outnumbered by the fans of the other team. That's exactly happened until Arizona Cardinal more recently. Now, here's the question I want us to wrestle with today. What if our homes were actually a place where there were more people cheering for us than booing against us, that were working for us than against each other? That doesn't mean that within a home setting that you don't have necessary hard conversations. Hard conversations need to happen. 
truthful conversations help get things working together better. But the problem is that many of us, even many of us right now in the room, have grown up in homes where our home was a place more of rivalry than it was us working together. In other words, it was, I'll boo against you knowing that you're going to boo against me. And the results have carried over and easily carry over from one generation to the next generation because that becomes all that we know. Where it's really hard to then establish a home as a place where we get energized. That a place, that our home could be a place that we actually walk in and we can actually be comfortable. Because we know that people are, are for us versus actually operating against us. This is the premise of what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. Talking this whole idea of home field advantage. That our homes could be a place when they're biblically grounded, when the Bible serves as the foundation, that Christ is at the center of our homes. That our homes can be a place in which we can actually become energized. A place that we can retreat from versus a place that we just recognize, eh, I think I'm going to have to deal with exactly the same thing at home that I've dealt with all day in the rest of the world. That's what we're going to be talking about. Now, if you're single, you're going to get a lot out of our conversation. Hang in there. If you've been married for a long time and you already have kids maybe out of your house, you too, I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to challenge you, engage the conversation because there's stuff here for you as, as well. Now, the big idea to our conversation in this series is home field advantage happens when you belong. Home field advantage simply happens when you belong. Now, what does that mean? Let's kind of begin to break that down. And I want us today specifically, I want to begin to break that down, taking a look at two things, marriage and parenting. And I want to break it down from that perspective. God created marriage. God created parenting, something unique. In in understanding its uniqueness, it's unlike anything else that God created. Which means that you and I, being a part of a family, we, we belong to something like nothing else in creation belongs to. Let's take a look at even in the beginnings of this. So if you have your Bibles or your digital device, go ahead and flip over to Genesis to begin with. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to take a look at a couple verses here for us to just begin to set some of the basis to this. This is Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 27 and verse 28. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let me just pause there. God begins in the way that he creates humanity, male and female, different than all of his other creation, and that he created us in his own image. In other words, think about it from this standpoint. You are an image bearer. You're an image bearer. In other words, you carry with you everywhere you go certain attributes of God. This is different than anything else that God has created. You carry attributes of God wherever you go. In every conversation that you have, you're an image bearer. 
Another way to think about this is you are, as human, you are the high point of God's creation. And the fascinating thing is, as an image bearer, as that high point of God's creation, God has called us to multiply His image. We are image bearers that create more image bearers. There is a very unique purpose that God has created you and I to be a part of. Now, parenting teaches us so much about God and how God relates to us and even how we relate to him. I mean, I can remember bringing home my son from the hospital the first time, just my mind was blown because automatically I realized I can love more than I ever thought I could love. But also I realized I'm more selfish than I've ever thought I was. Kids have a way of putting a mirror in front of you and you begin to realize who you are and who you aren't. But at the same time, they reveal a part of who God is and how God chooses to want to relate to you and I. Kids will break your heart. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to have kids to be a part of a family. The family unit really has been the foundational cornerstone of society and also the church. The church and society wouldn't be where they are, wouldn't be what they've accomplished without the family units. Imagine if family doesn't actually operate the way that it was meant to operate. What happens to society? If we know that the family, even from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, we see that God begins to establish the, the idea of the family and that they are to operate even before sin enters the picture in this perfect relationship with one another and with God. The family was part of God's intention from the, from the beginning. If we know that society and God's plans are to operate through the family and how the family operates in the world, if I'm the devil, the devil's playbook, what am I going to do? I'm going to destroy the family. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to get the family off track, to distort what marriage is, to distort the purpose and how a family actually operates. It's interesting, there's a, a sociologist named Carl Zimmerman. You can look him up. Carl Zimmerman made his study, he actually published a book, Family and Civilization. And in his study and in his research, he identifies 11 symptoms of what he describes as being final decay. In other words, he observed these symptoms both in Greek civilization and in Roman civilization. And he characterizes that these things, these symptoms of final decay, are lead factors to the fall of certain societies or certain empires throughout history. Here's the 11. I'm just going to read these out for you. Number one, no-fault divorce. Number two, he calls birth dearth. In other words, there is an overarching increased disrespect for parenthood or the idea of parenting. In other words, you see a decline in the birth rate among society. Number three, he says meaningless marriage rites or ceremonies. 
where the ceremony of marriage really doesn't mean anything. It's just a time for us to get together and to celebrate. Number four, defamation of past national heroes. Number five, acceptance of alternative marriage forms. Number six, he says, widespread attitudes of feminism, narcissism, and hedonism. Number seven, propagation of anti-family sentiment. Number eight, acceptance of most forms of adultery. Number nine, rebellious children in society. Number 10, he says, increased juvenile delinquency. And number 11, common acceptance of all forms of sexual perversion. Now, here's the interesting thing. Carl Zimmerman published that in 1947. Family, marriage, that the way that God says things should work and the way that things should happen. When they aren't doing those things, when they're not living to the purpose and the vision in which God created family and marriage and parenting to operate by, it is the number one threat to our society and to our churches. I mean, just think about the reflection of what that list of 11 things and what we're seeing play out in our world even today. And I know that this is the greatest threat to society in our churches because we see it happening. We see it happening all around us. And I know what I'm about to say is going to rub some of you in the room wrong. But I'm going to say it anyways. Marriage. One man, one woman for life. And you bring along with you these little free agents that you sign up along the way. This is what the Bible says. And when you begin to twist it and you pull parts out that you don't like, it all begins to fall apart. God continues with this thought. You have Genesis chapter 1. You see the creation of all things. And in that, we see the creation of humanity. And then in chapter 2, Moses kind of repeats it a little bit when he captures this in Genesis chapter 2. But he gets more specific into the family unit and in marriage and how things are going to operate. I want us to skip over to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read in verse 18, and then we're going to skip over to verse 24. In verse 18, he says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. When you read this, the perspective that I want you to understand when you see this is that you in and of yourself, you are not a complete image bearer by yourself. When God looked at Adam and, and he saw Adam operating in the garden, given an assignment that God gave Adam, which was to go and name all the animals, and who knows how long that, that would have taken. You know, God looks at Adam and he looks at all this and he goes, you know what? It's not good for man to be alone. I'll amen that. It's, it's, God even saw it. It's not good for us. We need a helper. 
Men, God created a helper to walk beside you. Why? Because in and of yourself, you're not a complete image bearer of God. Ladies, you come alongside your husband as a helper. In and of itself, you are not a complete image bearer of God. There's something that we need of each other in the way that we operate, the way that we interact, the way that society operates moving forward. If we can't agree on this foundational truth that God has declared about the family and about how marriage is to come together, how can you and I carry on the mission that he's called us to be about in the church? And yes, we need love. But the problem is the way that love is being defined by society isn't actually love. Jesus calls us to be people that speak truth in love. See, agreeing with your definition when it is contrary to the very word of God, as though it has been revealed in Scripture, isn't love. There's two lies that are being used right now to disrupt society, disrupt the whole perspective of marriage, the home, and family. The first is what lie, the lie of what tolerance actually is. This idea that if you're really tolerant, it means that you will actually agree with me. I remember a day and time in society that we could disagree and still go have a meal and have a good time and enjoy life. We could still be friends. The second thing that we see is disrupting all of our society and even what God has grounded in the very heart of who he is and how he's created us is that sexuality is our identity. That's a lie. This perspective that our number one identity is who I am sexually is a lie. We just talked about that if the family and the foundation of the family is the cornerstone to society and the church, in other words, and how God is going to carry out his mission and move it forward, that other people would come to know who the goodness of who Jesus is, that in and of it ourselves, we cannot save ourselves, that we need him. Our identity should not be grounded in what I feel. Our identity should be grounded in who he is and who he says I am. He's the creator. He has the right to say the way it operates. There are all kinds of things, and I hear it. We see it. I've talked with people, and, and I, I love people dearly that will talk about from the perspective, well, I'm just doing, I'm being me. I'm being what is natural to me. I can tell you first and foremost, there are a lot of things I want to do naturally that aren't good for me. They aren't God's best for me. And the reality is God knows that, and that's the direction that sin has a way of pulling us. I never had to teach any of my kids at age two to argue and to lie. They just did that. That was natural. I have to help them guide them to become to understand that that's not good for you, that there's another way of living. And I'm not done with it yet. I still got a seven-year-old that is a great liar. You know, pray for us. But friends, like, if all we do is seek what feels natural for us, we are deceiving ourselves in the end. The Bible tells us our heart is deceitful above all else. 
So we've got to turn to something outside of ourselves that gives us perspective and direction that's grounded. Scripture is that. It's God's word given to us to guide us through the upheaval and the challenges that exist all around us in our world. Allow yourself to be honest with yourself and with what God is doing and who he's calling us to be. There's three components today that will serve kind of as a foundational piece as we kind of move throughout this series. Three components that help build belonging. A place in which home field advantage exists for us. And specifically in the home. Three things that we see through scripture that help us create this belonging. The first thing is this. Protect. Protect. And when I talk about protection, what I'm talking about is spiritually protect, emotionally protect, physically and mentally protect. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26 says this. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And his children will have a refuge. In other words, when you're, is your home a place in which people feel safe? Do they feel safe around you, safe to be who they are, safe to have honest conversation, safe to be able to ask questions? And when we talk about safe, we're talking about in those four areas, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally. Or is there, is there a fear that exists of if I say this or if I question this, I better prepare for the outcome of what's coming after me. The way that God intended the family and the home to operate. Guys, we have enough going on around us, enough junk. We need that to be a place in which we know I have people for me that I can come, I can be energized, I can find comfort, I can be loved, I can be safe. And this is in every area of our lives. So the first component of building a belonging in the home is it needs the home needs to be a place of protection. The second is you need to include play. You've got to play together. Ecclesiastes 9.9 says this. It says, enjoy life with the wife of whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Great perspective that Solomon gives us about life and about marriage. Now Solomon writes this most likely at the end of his life. Solomon is the second wisest man to ever walk the face of the earth, second to Jesus himself. Now, Solomon knew a little bit about relationships and the dysfunction of relationships. With roughly, you know, 700 wives, um, he had a different perspective than most people would have. And when he's looking at the world and all these, he, he talks about throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes, if you could do it, I've, I've done it. He had the means, he had the finances, he had the opportunity, he had every opportunity. He lived it out, and he lived it to its fullness. If it was seeking popularity, he sought it like nobody else. If it was experiencing what money could do, he'd spin it all. If it was pursuing relationships, sex, he did it. Like, he lived it to its fullness. And he, in the end, he talks about it, he goes, you know what? It's all vain. It's all meaningless when it all comes down to it. And he's like, don't get caught up in just focusing on those. And he gives us some words of wisdom. He says, hey, 
enjoy your spouse. Find time to do things that you enjoy together. Make the most out of that relationship. Play together. Laugh together. Couples in the room. When's the last time you just truly, really had a good laugh? Where you got hurt. That you were able to have fun together. Make that an important aspect of your life and your marriage. How many times do we reverse it? Where we pursue life and we get so busy that that relationship gets put on the back burner. Solomon's words here are a great reminder. Focus in on the things that matter. We read this from King David in Psalm 127. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of a womb of reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. In other words, enjoy your children. Enjoy the opportunities. It comes and it goes so fast. And children are a blessing. Yes, I know you're sitting there going, well, they're a burden. They need to be more of a blessing in your life than a burden. And I'm going to challenge you to view them that way. Enjoy your children. For those that are in the room and maybe you haven't had the opportunity to have children, maybe you want to have children you haven't had that opportunity, find ways to bring children into your world. They keep you humble, but they keep you fun. Whether or not it's serving among children, coaching, play with your niece, play with your nephew, find ways to connect with children because there's something that they teach us about ourselves but also about who God is and how he's working in our world. How well are you doing at playing and laughing with your kids? If you play together, your kids will pull together. And they'll pull together in the home. The third aspect, third component of building belonging in the home is provision. It's to provide. And I think one of the basic things that we think about when we think about provision is we need to provide life skills, right? I want to teach my kids how to become functioning adults. I want to teach them how to get through school, how to get a job, how to relate to people. Right now, with my youngest, that's the hardest one right now. It's like, when you do that, that's annoying. Stop, you know? People will not want to be around you when you keep doing that. He's seven, I get it. But I hope that behavior shifts as he grows older. There's an element as a parent, like you're teaching your kids basic life skills. How to drive a car. How not to run into the person in front of them. I mean, it's just on and on. It's, it's life skills. And I don't think you ever totally exit the life skills side of things. But you teach them about how to deal with tough stuff. How to navigate challenges of life. Life is going to throw things at them that are curveballs. It's difficult. It's going to be hard to make sense. How do I get around this? How do I deal with this? Those are important things. But the biggest skill, the biggest area that as a parent you can provide for your kid isn't how to get the next sports scholarship. 
It's how to, for them to become who God has actually called them to be. That's the greatest thing that you can provide for your kids. It's teach them who Jesus is. Teach them how Jesus has loved them. Teach them to understand that he's created them with a purpose. He's gifted them unique. And that he wants to be an integral part of their story. Teach them how, how to submit to that. How to walk humbly with him. How to hear his voice in the moments that are challenging. How to trust him that he's good. That you can walk by faith knowing he's real and he cares. In other words, I think one of the greatest things that you can do for your kids is guide them into understanding what I would call a mission statement for your home. Jesus was questioned, what is the most important commandment? In other words, what should I really focus on? Is it, you know, is it about giving? Is it about tithing? Is it about, you know, love God? Like, what is it? When you look at the Ten Commandments, when you look at all the other laws that were added, what's the most important thing? And Jesus said it this way. He says, hey, it's to love God with all that you are and love people. Love God with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with all of your spirit, with all of who you are. Love God. Place him number one and love people. Love people the way that God has, has loved them. And yes, it's going to be difficult. Without God in your life, you're not going to be able to do it. Create a mission statement for your family that leads them into a deeper understanding of what it means to love God and to love people. Because in the end, that's maturity. Maturity is how well you love God and how well you love people. And he set the tone for us. This morning, the band's going to come back out. They're going to begin to play. And I want us to take some time. And we're just going to slow down in this moment. And we're going to take communion together. Communion is an opportunity for us to just slow down and reflect upon who Jesus is and all that Jesus has accomplished for us. That he brought hope. He brought purpose through the cross. That all those things, all the baggage, all the challenges that you and I, we deal with, have been dealt with. They've been moved to the side when we place our faith in him. And so in this moment, if you already, if, if you missed getting your communion elements or sitting over here on the high top, I would encourage you to go ahead and grab those. But again, we, there's nothing magical, there's nothing mystical that takes place in communion, but it's a time for us to reflect upon who Jesus is. What took place on the cross when he died for us? The cracker on the top represents the fact that his body was beaten for us. The cup of juice represents the fact that his blood was spilled for us. And ever since that moment, the church has together over the centuries taken time to just remember who Jesus is through this practice. And I recognize in a room like this that there may be some of you that maybe you're new to church. Maybe you're looking for spiritual answers. First of all, we're glad you're here. We pray for you. We plan for it. Thanks for being here. And if you've never come into that moment where you've said yes to following Jesus, I don't want to ever ask you to do something that means nothing to you. And so in this moment, I would rather you just take a moment and just quietly where you're at, just say, God, would you reveal yourself to me? 
then participate in communion. And I believe wholeheartedly that God will answer that very prayer. The band's going to lead us through a song, and during this song, and they're going to pause throughout it. You have the freedom this morning. Just take it where you're at on your own. I'm not going to come back up on stage and lead you through it. I just want this to be a moment between you and Christ. If you want to do it with your spouse, that's fine. If you want to do it with your family, that's fine. But you're on your own this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you and we need you. We thank you for who you are and all that you've accomplished for us. Pray that you continue to walk with us. Give us strength and courage to build the foundational pieces that hold relationships and the family together. Even in those moments, it's difficult. Help us to to push our pride to the side. Lord, your word says that you give grace to the humble. Lord, teach us to be humble because I want more of your grace in my life. In your name I pray, amen.